So we're at the National Press Club, right? And I'm literally on my watch about uh, 25 minutes ago, uh, breaking news, this is where news happens. Um, breaking news came across that there were 704 cases of measles reported, um, and that's the highest number uh, in over 25 years. Um, so um, Dr. Mazur has added that to his talk uh, at the end, so we're very pleased. He anticipated the news. That's uh, pretty impressive. So Dr. Mazur, you know, and he's going to talk to us about OIs and the Washington, D.C. epidemic. I think uh, this uh, was a setup in terms of measles because we were talking last night about whether we should say something about measles here, and after having an extensive discussion among the faculty, we couldn't decide what to say. Uh, so uh, I, I will bring that up at the end, but it is an interesting issue of what you do when a healthy HIV-negative patient asks you what to do about measles. There are a lot of issues there, but when somebody who's HIV-positive asks you, there's even less data but we can at least discuss what some of our uh, issues are. And uh, my response to that is, Mike, uh, don't go away, because I'm going to ask you what you would do. So, so uh, I have no uh, relevant financial conflicts. Uh, we're going to talk about not just opportunistic infections, but because this year neither Amanda Castell nor Alan Greenberg are here to talk about the D.C. epidemic, I do want to bring you up to date on a few of the uh, data here. And that's going to lead into some of our discussions later about opioid use disorder and about STDs, and we're going to talk about some of the new issues about opportunistic infections. Because, again, I think all of you who practice medicine here recognize that in any urban area of the United States, actually in any area, there are plenty of patients who don't uh, present for medical care until they have a low CD4 and they have an opportunistic infection so that uh, the management of OIs is still uh, relevant. So the first thing that I want to do is just spend uh, 10 or 15 minutes talking about the data from the 2017 report. And again, I think that everybody who comes to this uh, uh, course knows about the evolution of our knowledge of HIV in the city. But for those of you who are newer to the game, just to remind you that until 2007, uh, the city of Washington didn't really know what its uh, incidence of HIV was. And it was really when uh, a new commissioner of health came in uh, when Alan Greenberg came to the uh, uh, GW School of Public Health, that we began to get data. And I think that the, the real bottom line is, while we have a terrible problem in 2007, while we still have a terrible problem, we have made tremendous uh, progress in the city. I think we should be proud of that, although we still have a long, long ways to go. So the question is, what are the data that lead to that? If you look at the new HIV diagnoses uh, in the uh, United States and D.C., there are two messages to get from this. One is, if you look at the data from the United States, we are not doing a great job at reducing the number of new cases. Uh, in the district, I think we're doing a fabulous job of reducing the number of new cases, but the issue still is we're way above the national average. So again, I will show, I'll show you in another uh, uh, graph in a moment. Uh, the change in the number of new cases where we've gone from 1,100 cases in a year to uh, 350, and that's fabulous, but 350 is still a big problem. So here you can see the difference between the District of Columbia in terms of the absolute number and in terms of the trend compared to the United States in general. This shows what the trends are over uh, the last, um, uh, over the last uh, 20 years. 
I think the issue is the blue bars show you the, um, uh, the total population, and the total population is increasing for the obvious reason that we're getting new cases and pe people are living longer. So I guess that's good news. If you look, though, at the orange line as opposed to the red line, which is death, the orange line shows the number of new cases. So again, the number of new cases has gone down dramatically, but the problem is that we've leveled out in the last few years. We've leveled out largely because of adolescence and because of African-American uh, MSMs. Those are the populations we have to focus on. So again, we've gone way down in 10 years, which is good. We can argue whether or not gentrification of the city and pushing some of the patient populations across the border into um, uh, Prince George's County or even Upper Montgomery County or, or um, uh, Eastern Montgomery County is the issue, but the number of cases uh, uh, has gone down. If you look at who are the people who are getting newly diagnosed uh, HIV in the district, I don't think it'd be a surprise to any of you to know that uh, a large number of these are black women, uh, they're uh, Hispanic and black men who have sex with men, and a lot of adolescents. I know that Larry D'Angelo, who's sitting over here, has been working on adolescents for many, many years, but it's a population we still need to spend a lot of time on because they have a particular problem. A lot of issue we all focus on is not only making a diagnosis of HIV, but also getting these patients into care and having them virally suppressed. And there are really two populations in the district, those who go to Ryan White clinics who have uh, more extensive uh, uh, resources available to them than those who don't. I think you can see here that while we are going to start with this new presence and issue trying to get more rapid diagnosis and getting people linked to care, we have to look to see where we are. So if you look in 2017, uh, if you look at the 12,000 patients uh, we think are living with HIV in the city, uh, you can see that only about 8,000 were uh, persistently virally suppressed. And we will talk a little bit later about opioid use disorders and some other reasons why perhaps patients are not virally suppressed. But this is not especially good news that we have such a poor record in terms of getting people virally suppressed. And we have to think of uh, more uh, operational approaches to how we can improve the number so that, number one, these patients do better, and number two, there isn't transmission from this population of unsuppressed patients to others. So if you look at the 65% in this uh, uh, graph here. You can see here it's 82 percent in the Ryan White uh, clinic. So again, it's, it's something that I think we all know. If you have more resources available in your clinic, you're more likely to be able to get uh, patients uh, the services they need so that they can uh, uh, become con persistently virally suppressed. So again, there are different populations in the, in the district, but I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see a big emphasis on, again, identifying those who are not yet known to be HIV positive and getting these people into uh, effective care. So this just gives you a sense of where we are right now. We're going to hear uh, a little bit later uh, uh, about from Jean Marazzo about STDs. But again, while we're doing better in terms of reducing uh, HIV uh, suppression, if you look at the amount of unprotected sex uh, as shown by the number of cases of gonorrhea, you can sh uh, see here that from 2007, 2013, 2017, we are having uh, an even greater epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases. Again, these are young people. These are uh, uh, men who have sex with men. Uh, and I think, again, Jeannie's going to tell you a lot more about this uh, later. Uh, but uh, uh, this city has not solved the problem of 
sexually transmitted diseases, whether it's HIV, hepatitis C, or syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, and we'll hear more about that uh, later. Another issue that, again, we're going to hear more about later uh, are comorbidities, specifically op opioid epidemic. And everybody in this room is aware of the fact that Washington is as affected or more affected than many areas of the country. Uh, if you look at the number of overdose deaths in the United States, again, I think we've all seen this graph, and we know that the number of deaths due to uh, drug overdoses, 64,000, is, again, astronomical compared to the number of patients who die of HIV, the number of patients who die of motor vehicle, motor vehicle accidents uh, or uh, other kinds of trauma. So that we know that we have a problem. The question is, how much of a problem do we have in D.C.? Uh, so you can see here that Washington has a very high uh, rate, 30 overdoses deaths per 100,000. Baltimore is one of the few areas that has a higher rate. So we have a very high rate compared to the national average. And this is something that, again, we have to spend up, uh, we have to emphasize in this city. Again, we're going to hear later two talks about how we can uh, address this more effectively than we have before. So if you look at how our drug-related deaths uh, compared to the United States, you can see that since 2015, we've had a dramatic increase. Whether some of this is the way we keep records, uh, uh, I think is uh, unclear. But again, you can see that while it is a disastrous number in the U.S. as a whole, D.C. has a major problem, and we need better strategies and better services to uh, work on this. I know that there are a number of centers around the uh, city that are doing more uh, needle exchange to reduce HIV transmission and more services uh, such as Suboxone to try to reduce drug-related uh, uh, overdose deaths, and we're here, we'll hear more about that uh, shortly. Again, the last slide on this uh, is if you look in the city at what our drug uh, problems are, you can see here that uh, while heroin is a problem, we have trouble with fentanyl, we have trouble with oxycodone, we have trouble with a number of drugs. And again, we're going to hear more of the details about what the nature of this epidemic is. But in this city, I think we probably need more granular detail to understand how much of the problem is cocaine, amphetamines, uh, opioids, and fentanyl, uh, and these are issues that take a variety of ways to, uh, uh, to try to reduce their impact. Uh, and again, the patients who are getting uh, the problem, you can see here that uh, if you look at the national average uh, of uh, overdose deaths uh, in the United States, and you look in the city at the white population, the black population, I think we recognize what the correlates uh, of overdoses are and where we need to emphasize our efforts. So this is just to give you some idea of where we are with HIV, where we are with opioids, the intersection of the two, and the fact that we really have to emphasize what to do about opioids as well as the new initiative on what to do about HIV in general. So let's switch back to the topic at hand, opportunistic infections. And again, I think we learned a lot about opportunistic infections in the 1980s and the 1990s. Admittedly, most of the trials on how to do diagnosis, how to do therapy, how to do prevention were done in the era when we didn't have good antiretroviral uh, regimens. And the question is, what's new in the last uh, few years? If you look at what's in the guidelines, there are two issues I'm not going to spend uh, any time on, but just to remind you that in February, the guidelines changed the recommendation about mycobacterium avium prophylaxis. Uh, for a long time, disseminated mycobacterium avium was a big problem among HIV-infected patients who had low CD4 counts. 
for reasons that are not entirely clear, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's a lot, of, there's a lot less maxine in HIV-infected patients. Part of this is the fact that more patients are virally suppressed, but I think there are other epidemiologic uh, issues that are not uh, as clear. But in any event, we don't see much MAC anymore. So if you have a patient who's going to take antiretroviral therapy, uh, they really, no matter what their CD4 count or their viral load, they do not need MAC prophylaxis, and that's no longer recommended. The question sometimes comes up is, well, if a patient won't take antiretroviral therapy, should they take MAC prophylaxis? I think that's really a theoretical issue, because I don't think there is probably such a patient we've ever seen who would take MAC prophylaxis if they won't take antiretroviral therapy. So yeah, it would theoretically be beneficial, and it was beneficial before the era of antiretroviral therapy, but I don't think that's a relevant issue now. The other thing, which is a longer discussion, is what to do about HPV, and maybe Jeannie will say something about that later. But the recommend, I think everybody's aware of the fact that there is no longer a two-valent or four-valent uh, vaccine available in the United States. The nine-valent is what's out there. It is recommended for uh, HIV-infected patients nine to 26 years old. There are a lot of issues about whether you should use it in patients who uh, may not be infected, who may not have been se uh, as sexually active. Uh, at older ages. Uh, there are a lot of issues there about what's the data, uh, about what's the patient population. But at least you should recognize the HPV vaccine in the, with the nine-valent is recommended for males and females from the age of nine to 26. So with the rest of the time, I'm going to talk about the uh, five topics uh, that are listed uh, below there. So let's do a question. Uh, the first question is, one of your HIV-infected patients who's 51 years old, has a CD4 count over 350, and is virally suppressed on some kind of standard ART, wants to know about the zoster vaccine. The patient had an episode of dermatomal zoster five years ago that was very painful and prolonged, and the patient remembers that. Uh, and the patient does not want to have another episode. He's never received any type of zoster vaccine. So the question is, what do you recommend? So why don't we start the timer and see what people say. So I'm going to uh, uh, farm out uh, guessing what the uh, music is. So Dr. Gillick, what is this music? I didn't hear what you said. Dancing in the street. See? They're, they're giving me the easy ones. All right, so I think most, uh, a lot of people know the, the uh, answer that I think is correct, but let's just go over what some of the uh, data is, which is to give the recombinant attenuated vaccine. Even if somebody had had the uh, prior vaccine, that's the right answer. Even if they've had dermatomal uh, zoster, that's the uh, right uh, issue. So uh, there is an old vaccine, the zoster vaccine uh, live. Uh, that was well-tested HIV-negative uh, individuals. It was clearly effective in uh, adults uh, over 60, uh, and it was very immunogenic. It was well-tolerated. Uh, it was a, a, a single dose, uh, and it had clinical efficacy. And for people living with HIV, uh, there was less robust data, but it was clearly safe and immunogenic. There were studies that showed it reduced zoster, uh, and um, uh, the question is, why do we need something newer? Well, there is a new vaccine, which is Shingrich, which is not always easy to uh, uh, get right now because uh, supplies are short. But this is a recombinant and 
adjuvanted uh, vaccine. So it's important to realize that this is not a live vaccine and this does have an adjuvant. And when we talk about this and the hepatitis B vaccine, the adjuvant is an important issue to at least keep in mind. So this study has been extensively studied in HIV negative individuals, has not been very well studied, at least in terms of data presented in people living with AIDS. But in terms of using a two-dose uh, regimen, it is very effective. It has longer immunogenicity than the live vaccine. So in addition to being safer in patients who might be immunosuppressed, uh, it would appear that it is both more potent in terms of reducing short-term cases and more likely to have long-term immunogenicity. And this is the reason that the Shingris is now preferred over the prior vaccine. Uh, the only issues with this are really twofold. One is, uh, if you look at some of the data, there is no statistically significant difference in terms of adverse events between those who got this vaccine and those who didn't. However, there was a trend to more acute myocardial infarcts, and there are some case reports of exacerbations of autoimmune disease. So one of the things you have to keep in mind is if your patient has either had a transplant, an organ transplant, or an autoimmune disease, you ought to think about whether an adjuvant vaccine might be disadvantageous. I think there are many people who would not use it with either of those uh, populations. And again, in an older population, if somebody had severe cardiovascular disease, it's something you might consider. But I think most experts would still give this new vaccine and not the older vaccine. But it's just something to keep in mind if somebody brings that up. There's not much data in people living with HIV, but this is not a live virus. I think it makes sense to give to your patients with HIV, but that is not yet an ACIP uh, recommendation because there's no data. But I, I would bet if you ask many vaccine experts, they would say they are not going to use the live vaccine anymore. They're going to use this, except maybe in somebody who's had an organ transplant uh, or uh, somebody uh, who has uh, severe cardiovascular disease. But again, using a live vaccine in that population has its own problems. So uh, uh, that's a more complex issue than we'll discuss here. Uh, so um, uh, there are questions with this new vaccine in terms of do you give it to people less than 50 years of age because um, uh, they also have an increased uh, risk of zoster. Uh, do you give it before they start antiretroviral therapy or before they have a viral load of 50? Probably reasonable to wait until at least their viral load is coming down. And again, how often you give this uh, isn't going to be known until we follow patients out for a much longer period of time. But again, I think that the Shingrix or the RZV is a recommended vaccine, all but a very few situations, and those are controversial. So here's another question. A uh, 22-year-old uh, MSM with multiple pa partners was recently found to be HIV positive and started on approved regimen. Uh, he, he is HPV negative by uh, the parameters that you see there. He's never immunized. So what do you recommend in terms of HPV vaccine? Uh, do you say no vaccine is uh, needed if you practice safe sex? Uh, wait until the CD4 count is over 350, give them the recombinant three-dose vaccine, uh, or do you give them the new adjuvanted vaccine? So let's see what everybody says. Again, there are probably more than one right answer here.
Are, are you going to sing the next one? All right. So, uh, uh, well, we have a, a split of answers. And the question is, I mean, I, I think this probably represents reality as to whether uh, you should use the older vaccine or whether we should, whether you should use the newer uh, adjuvant vaccine. So let's just look at a little bit of data uh, on that. So in terms of HPV vaccine, I think everybody in this room probably recon recognizes that everybody who's HPV positive should get uh, some kind of HPV vaccine. Uh, we also vaccinate family members of anybody who's HPV uh, positive. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about people who are core antibody, surface antibody negative, uh, but those people should probably be immunized as well, and that's a longer uh, discussion. Uh, the problem with the current, with the uh, uh, non-adjuvanted vaccine that's been available, uh, and there are two forms, uh, it is uh, not as immunogenic as we would like, and there are many pa patients who do not get a serologic uh, response. In terms of the new adjuvanted uh, vaccine, the so-called CPG vaccine, which has a TLR9 uh, agonist, uh, the advantage in HIV-negative patients is that, again, it's more immunogenic than the comparator, which in this case was the Endrix uh, vaccine, which is three doses. And like the prior Zoster vaccine, there, are, there is a uh, trend, not statistically significant, uh, that there are more cardiovascular events. So again, non-statistically significant, the question is should we even be talking about trends, but something just to be aware of. So the fact is the new vaccine, like the Zoster vaccine, is an adjuvant vaccine. Uh, it is probably more immunogenic. There is not good clinical or long-term data in patients with HIV. So it's sort of like the, the answers we got from the question, what do we do? I think the guidelines are probably going to, uh, when they come out again, are going to take an equivocal role. They're going to say everybody should get some kind of HPV, HPV vaccine if they're seronegative, but there isn't enough data to recommend with great enthusiasm the new uh, vaccine, but it makes sense to use it. So some would recommend it, some will wait for more data. So you should just be aware of these two new adjuvant vaccines. Probably both should be used, but uh, how much data you want to wait for is really up to you. So let's go to the next issue. Um, a lot of issues, one of the things I think there's been a lot of interest uh, at the meetings and there's a poster Croy this year about was whether or not we could do away with pneumocystis prophylaxis altogether in patients who are starting antiretroviral therapy. So let's uh, answer this question. A 20-year-old male is found to be HIV positive in STD clinic. He's referred to you uh, for initial management. He has a CD4 count of 100 and a viral load of a million copies. He's lived in Washington, D.C. all his life. Uh, so he lives in a country, namely the United States, that sees a fair amount of pneumocystis. He has no unusual exposures. He started on a uh, conventional uh, regimen. And the question is, what do you do about prophylaxis? So we'll see again whether anybody was not listening about MAC prophylaxis. So there really is then only one uh, answer here. But uh, let's see whether, uh, again, uh, this is a uh, evaluation whether I'm communicating well. All right, so good. So everybody got the right answer. And I, I, I don't want to um, 
uh, persevere in this, but there was an, a, uh, an abstract at Croy, uh, which was called Withholding Primary PCP Prophylaxis in Raleigh's Depressed Patients. And what the abstract suggested is that their preliminary results suggest that in virologically suppressed patients, irrespective of CD4, count level, CD4 levels, the risk of pneumocystis appears to be low. And I think, again, the problem with this abstract was it did get a certain amount of attention, but this was actually a worse study than what these same people had done several years ago. And then several years ago, they separated the patients who were 0 to 100 and 100 to 200. I think they had suggested that from 100 to 200, it may be true that you don't need it, although it wasn't very robust data. From 0 to 100, they had shown that you do need it. The problem here is all they looked at in this update was 0 to 200. So the data was really uh, pushed by the people with higher CD4s. So although their conclusion was maybe you don't need it, I don't think that's really true. And I'll just skip to this. This is a, a, a graph that I took from Mike Sag. Uh, Mike Sag used to show this at this uh, course, and I could never completely understand this because this is a very difficult uh, graph to read. But what this really shows is that if you're not on prophylaxis from zero to 100, you really do have a higher rate. So we could debate about whether it's zero to 100 or zero to 200, but I think that people with low CD4s still need pneumocystis prophylaxis. If you don't give it to them, you will see more pneumocystis than you want. So the guidelines are not going to change based on the data that was uh, presented uh, uh, at Croy. So let me ask you this. Does anybody here know what Talaromyces is? This was actually one of the most interesting uh, series of presentations at Croy, and I just want to uh, tell you a little bit about it, although I would suspect that no one here has ever seen a case, nor are you likely to see a case. Uh, but first of all, what is this? So let's uh, vote on what this is. And maybe you'll decide at the end of this. Uh, um, uh, I'll hear from Trip Gulick that nobody was interested in this other than me, but we'll find out. Uh, Okay, so again, 43% of you got what I think is the right answer. This used to be called penicillium, penicillium marnefi. And you know, there's all this literature about cases that look like they have histo or crypto and uh, appear in Southeast Asia uh, with uh, uh, disseminated disease. Uh, I've asked a variety of people on the guidelines panel, and I've asked Jack Bennett, who's the world expert on fungi, whether you ever see latent disease that reoccurs in the United States. And although there are a couple of uh, case reports from the 1970s, 1980s, it's very unusual. And the question is either whether a traveler there would come down with a disease here or whether the incubation is so short that it occurs there. But I think what's interesting about this is this is a fungal disease that occurs mainly in India uh, and uh, in uh, China. Uh, and again, it looks for all the world like histo or crypto, and you see cutaneous skin lesions, you see lung lesions, and you can see this organism in a peripheral smear if, in fact, uh, uh, you see one. Uh, what's new about this is that it used to be something that you didn't diagnose it to some clinical disease, but now there's a serum antigen, so you can manage this like you manage crypto, namely 
uh, you can look at this MP antigen, and if you look at your asymptomatic patients, a fair number of them will have this antigen that's positive. It also cross-reacts with galactomannan. The importance is if you screen them and they are antigen positive, they are very likely to develop uh, uh, tularemiasis or penicilliosis. Uh, if they're antigen negative, they're very unlikely to. So the issue is you screen them like you screen for cryptantigen in this country, and they're positive, you give them ITRA rather than fluconazole. So that's the issue. In the last two minutes, I want to tell you something that is relevant in the United States, and that's about TB for preventive therapy. I think there's been a lot of uh, uh, discussion about shorter regimens, and I think everybody knows that there's the three-month, uh, 12 uh, um, uh, dose regimen, there's a four-month rifampin regimen, and all of these are compared to a nine-month isoniazid regimen, and still the nine-month isoniazid regimen is still the gold standard. And the question is, what is safe, what is as effective, what is as safe, uh, and what is as reliably taken as isoniazid? So there was a uh, study that was uh, widely discussed at CROI and then subsequently uh, presented in the New England Journal on a one-month rifepentine uh, isoniazid regimen. And I think this is clearly something that is effective. So the study that was presented at CROI and uh, presented in the New England Journal was an HIV-positive uh, uh, people. The problem with doing these studies in the um, uh, in uh, uh, many areas of the world is that you can't always get somebody, you, it's hard always to uh, do a PPD or an IGRA on them. So in this study, many of the patients did not have a PPP, PPD or IGRA, so it wasn't clear how many of them, in fact, had latent disease. Uh, and many of those who had HIV were either had higher CD4s or were not on antiretrovirals, and they were on antiretrovirals, they were on efavirenz or, in some cases, nivirapine. So that this was a trial that wasn't entirely relevant to the United States, and when they looked at primary endpoints, they looked at people who either died or had TB, but they also looked at people who had an unknown cause, so that led to some variables. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is this is a very interesting uh, um, uh, trial. Uh, this is a trial that showed that if you look at the primary endpoint, again, which was uh, uh, definite TB, likely TB, or deaths, whether you looked at all patients, if you looked at CD4 is less than 250, looked at CD4 is uh, greater than 250, when this one-month regimen was compared to isoniazid, uh, it, was, uh, it was just as effective. So it raises the specter that a one-month regimen could be effective. The toxicities were relatively uh, mild, included neutropenia, including some uh, neurologic problems. But again, uh, although there were a difference in the two arm, they weren't... Uh, uh, terribly common. So I think the conclusions would be that a one-month regimen of rifepentine and isoniazid was non-inferior, and we can talk later about trial designs that show non-inferior, to nine months of isoniazid alone in preventing TB and HIV-infected patients. Uh, but it's also relevant to notice that in this group, they compared the success of completing the regimens and by self-report, it was 97% in the one-month group and 90% in the isoniazid group, which seems unusually high. This was self-reported. But you also have to keep in mind that with a rifepentine group, you can only use this with an efavirenz or a tetragravir-based regimen. You can't use it due to drug interactions with uh, 
other regimens. So I think the uh, bottom line is this one-month regimen is very promising. There are a lot of issues about what uh, situations you can use it in, whether it is relevant in a low endemic country, and what antiretrovirals you uh, want to use. So I think basically uh, what I want to do is update you on HIV and opioid use disorder in D.C., tell you about uh, changes in HPV and MAC prophylaxis, and tell you about a few of the new things, and at the end of this you can vote and tell me whether Tallermyces was relevant to anybody here or not. Thanks very much. So we uh, talked about we'd get to measles, so I thought we'd do that in the Q&A a little bit. Um, oh, that's right. My, my last slide wasn't there. So there the question is, is what, what do you do in measles? So first of all, and we were talking about this last night, so it is um, always said that you cannot give MMR to somebody with less than 200 CD4s. And Dr. Soretti asked, what if they have less than 200 CD4s and they're virologically suppressed? What is the data that says it's unsafe? And as far as I know, there is no data. If anybody from the FDA or anybody would like to get up and say something, we'd be interested in the uh, uh, information. Uh, but um, I think most people would at least be reluctant to give it to somebody who's less than CD4, no matter what their viral load. My question is, when their viral load is over 200, uh, do they need it? And there are issues about how old they are, whether they got a one-dose or two-dose vaccine, uh, and there are issues about what population they're likely to be exposed to. If you're dealing with people in New York City or in Brooklyn, there may be one answer, there may be a different answer here. But I don't think we have a good database uh, issue. But Laura, are you, do, is that something you'd like? Uh, I think, I, I'm sure you'd <laughs> like to give an answer. <laughs> no. Uh, so uh, I honestly don't know that to somebody who's virologically suppressed with a CD4 count over 200, the answer is any different. That, you know, I get a fair number of calls from either family members or uh, neighbors saying, you know, uh, uh, I need to get measles vaccine. And I say, well, you know, the likelihood if you got your two-dose regimen of you're not having titers and being exposed is so low that you probably don't need it, but they want it, so they get it. Uh, I don't know what other advice to give them. So if you're looking for a definitive answer for me, uh, maybe I should just ask like Dr. Gill, or I'll ask Jeannie, well, you're the head of, uh, you're, you're the head of uh, infectious disease at a uh, major university. Uh, go to the microphone and tell us what you will tell patients when they uh, call you whether well, they have HIV well, or non-HIV. Well, what did she tell the news when they interviewed her yeah, it's last great, it's week? It's great to be introduced as the head of infectious diseases as a major, major university. Thank you, Henry. Um, so NPR had a story on it this morning. That's my, um, that's my contribution to this conversation, and in it, several people who frequently opine uh, about um, uh, infectious diseases, like Bill Schaffner uh, at Vanderbilt, um, make the point that um, there's probably no downside to being re-immunized, uh, particularly if you were vaccinated, I believe, before 1983 is the, is the um, 
the year that they talked about, and that's because if you were vaccinated before 1983, odds are good that you only got one immunization. Um, you probably should have gotten a booster anyway. Um, so what I would tell people is if access and money are no options or not no barriers, then I would go ahead and get a booster vaccine. The data on waning immunity are really interesting and mostly come from studies of pregnant women who have been screened during pregnancy, and it's not great data, but there are some to say that about 16% of pregnant women may have suboptimal uh, antibody levels. That may not be representative of your average adult because, of course, you've got the changes in the volume of distribution with pregnancy. But I still think that's a notable number, and certainly ACOG came out with a statement last week that um, encouraged providers, although they were not very clear about it, to consider routinely measuring antibody levels in pregnant women. And I'm sure given the concerns about that, um, people are doing that. The problem with pregnancy, of course, is that you can't give the live vaccine, but at least you'll know if somebody's vulnerable. If they're exposed, they can get measles, Ig. So yeah. does that and, help? And, and yes. And then the question is, I guess, I presume it's not economically feasible. Again, I know I'm asking you to make this up uh, as I uh, ask you to check their titer before you just give them a number, another MMR, particularly it's just easier if they're concerned uh, and they only got one or if they got two many, many decades ago, just to give them the MMR exactly. and not wait for a tighter. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, anybody else want to make a comment? All right, Laura Cheever presumably had something else to say. Hi, yes, yeah, so I just had a question. Um, and it happens routinely because people come in and get all their labs and they see me for the first time. So a person who was born in the 90s who got a hepatitis vaccination in childhood, and then someone draws their hepatitis titers and they're negative. I'm saying you shouldn't have drawn that titer, so I'm going to ignore the result. I just want to make sure that that's still correct. Well, actually, Jean sounds like she has something to say. I mean, I, I think that uh, generally, if your titer is under 10 international units, you ought to get a booster. Now, Jean, were you going to say something to the contrary? Mm -hmm. Okay. So generally, so the question is how often do you measure it? Should you measure it every year or not? Well, so the, that's, that's the question. Clear. I guess so someone who's been vaccinated in childhood needs a booster as an adult? That's what I'm asking. If, if, they're, if, they're, if you check them serologically and their uh, antibody titer is less than 10 uh, international units, they should get a booster. There's no guidance to check, though. That's, that's my challenge is that they shouldn't have had that. If, if they come in and they were vaccinated as a child, you leave them alone. That I'm just, it just seems a little odd to me. I never can quite figure out what to do. We usually, I discuss with the patient, and if they're a young gay man, I'll, uh, if they're at risk of, of hepatitis. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the point is, after your primary series, you check somebody's titer. After that, there is no guidance as to how often you should check it. But in general, if someone comes in and they've had, you, you can, they, I get their mother to photograph and send in their little vaccine card, because they all had it from back in that era. They have an, They'll, they'd have gotten all three as a child, then we don't need to check their titer and we just leave them alone? Well, I mean, that's a good question. All I can say is there's no guidance on that. That's a good question. And I think uh, rather than giving you an off-the-cuff off uh, answer, uh, uh, I have to think about that. But Jeannie, you, you, what, what do you tell your patients? So um, there are places that require evidence of immunity, right? Some healthcare uh, um, uh, facilities, of course. Um, and in those situations, I believe there are data about how often people lose their protection. I don't know them exactly. Um, I think that 
the guidance is not specific for routine uh, repeat check. I guess the question is in your HIV setting, are you concerned that people are more likely to lose their antibodies and given that they're at significant ongoing risk of sexual exposure to hepatitis B, um, would that make you more likely to do it? I don't believe the guidelines, the opportunistic infection guidelines address this and maybe that's something for your panel to take on, Henry. Yeah. Yeah, it's, also, it's also a confusing issue because if you look at what the guidelines say for people who are core positive and surface right. antibody negative, yeah. there's a big debate about yeah. you know, whether they're infected or not. But the, the issue is you give them a vaccine, and if they're over 100, they don't need a vaccine. So they use 100 right. there versus 10 right. uh, for yeah. anyone else. So again, what the data that that's based on is, I think, is uh, really an unknown. I'll check we'll and see if ACIP has year. anything, but I, I'm not. I don't believe they do. Right. There were, the first two questions were on the cards were exactly what we just talked about. So um, the other question is, uh, what about the use of dolutegravir or bictegravir with uh, weekly rifapentine? Right now, that I think until there is more data on uh, what happens to levels, that is not recommended because your levels. Uh, of those of the antiretrovirals clearly go down. The question is, do they go down enough to reduce the efficacy? So I think it probably would be unwise. I doubt there's ever going to. You you can tell me what you and Trip think. I doubt there's ever going to be data suggesting that it is safe to do that if you get a substantial decrease. How you would ever do the study saying that a 50 percent or I think 53 percent or something reduction is okay? Would okay. you ever tell somebody that that's okay? Yeah, reduction in uh, uh, in dolutegravir levels. Yep. So the answer is no. You yep. only give it uh, uh, with efavirenz uh, or uh, raltegravir. Okay. The um, the next question I think we just kind of glossed over, so it's worth coming back to. We were talking about a measles MMR vaccine for people living with HIV and had lower CD4 counts. What is the recommendation in your view for higher CD4 counts above 200? suppressed virus and in a measles community? Uh, I think the recommendation is it's safe to give a C for right. count over 200. Yep. Again, what the data is that that's based on is probably not terribly robust. But it's interesting that there are enough patients who've gotten that. You would think that there would be cases in the literature of disseminated measles or mumps or rubella, which as far as I know, there are not. Correct. Um, I just want to reemphasize your point on that last uh, uh, case or so is that, or the study on, well, I'll still call it penicillium, but um, I, I could have sworn I had a case about a year and a half ago. Somebody showed up, they were originally from Vietnam, uh, diagnosed with HIV in the U.S., and soon after um, getting treated for HIV, broke out in this incredible uh, skin rash, had fever. Um, looked really sick and I thought, and had lesions that were typical for, if you want to call that, for penicillium. I took lots of pictures, we biopsied, we cultured, and he had histo. So, um, you know, those are highly related infections, but um, it's hard to find a case in the U.S. You're exactly right. Um, any other questions for about OIs or the DC epidemic? We're going to get to opioids again later after lunch.